Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in that wonderful and mighty name that we have sung about, that we have heard about, the name, the only name that can save us, the name of Jesus. We thank you that you are here through the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you know the name of each person in this room. You know their thoughts. You know their hearts. You love deeply each person here today. Each person created in your image. And Lord, I ask that you would speak to our hearts and our minds tonight through your word. The greatest message ever told, the greatest hope the world will ever know is Jesus. And it's to him we look now. And we open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is so good to be here with you tonight. And I do want to tell you that tonight I am going to ask you to make a decision to put your faith in Jesus and follow him, if that's not something you have already done. In John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, Jesus makes this truth statement. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So to simplify here, what Jesus is saying is that he pictures two possible visions for your life. One path is to be deceived by who he calls here the thief, who we know to be Satan, the serpent, going back to Genesis 3. Uh, the thief will tell you lies about who God is. The thief will tell you that you can do life without God. The thief will tell you that you can be the master of your own destiny. He'll appeal to our flesh. Remember that part of us that wants to do things our way, not God's way. He'll appeal to those disordered desires that we have within us. He'll convince us that we can decide our own truth, that we can decide what is right or wrong. And he'll lure us in. He'll help us think we can live without God. He'll entice us into sin, which for a season can really be a lot of fun. But the end result, steal, kill, destroy, it's destruction. It's a life separated from God. It's a life apart from God. The other path is very simple. It's to trust Jesus. It's to believe the truth that there is a God who created you, that you were created in his image, that you were designed on purpose, that your life has value and meaning, that before time even began, God envisioned your life, that our creator wants you to thrive. He wants you to experience this abundant life with him, not apart from him. He doesn't want you to do life on your own. As our designer, he knows what's best for you. Now, when we hear that word abundant life, we, we need to take caution. It doesn't always mean health and wealth and prosperity. In fact, sometimes following Christ can be very, very difficult. However, what it does mean is that our life will have purpose. Our life will have meaning. Our life with God and others will be authentic. It will be rich. There will be depth to it. There will be life in His very Spirit. It's a whole different way of living knowing that he is with us, who 
calls himself the bread of life, the, the light of the world, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, you know, when I was 19, I told you that's when I really truly embraced the gospel. And leading up to my moment where I realized my sinfulness, I realized my need for Jesus, God actually used two uh, ceremonies in my life. One was a wedding and one was a funeral. So the wedding I went to was a classmate. I had graduated her senior year, but I had known her since we were six years old. Her name was Cindy Birdsell uh, before she got married. Now, Cindy was one of those people. We were in a public school. I'd actually gone to the uh, Christian school with her when we were younger. We were both in the public school at this time. She was one of those people that was very popular, involved in all kinds of things, tons of friends, but everybody knew that she followed Christ. She had such integrity in her walk. You know, people kind of make jokes like, oh, she never gets drunk. She, she'll never have sex before marriage. She probably doesn't even kiss her boyfriend, you know, that kind of thing. But deep down, everybody respected her. And then she got married just shortly after we graduated. And I'd say probably half the senior class was at her wedding. In fact, when I told you that non-Christian friend invited me to church, it was because he went to that wedding. He said, I want to go to that church. So I'm like, sure, why not? But one of the things I remember sitting there as I watched this wedding is they talked about Jesus Christ being the center of their relationship. They talked about living out a marriage where the husband would serve the wife sacrificially and the, the wife would trust the husband to lead her and guide her and they would together as a team complimenting each other. They would, they would live their lives for God's glory and they would love each other and they would love the world around them. And I sat there thinking, man, at that point in my life, I had dated a lot, but I'd never had a girlfriend that lasted more than two months because of selfishness, because of immaturity. And I sat there thinking, man, I could never do what she's doing. I'll never be able to get married. I can't even keep somebody more than two months. And that really shook me up. Then I went to a funeral, a man named Oscar Diego. He had been a junior high pastor, a middle school pastor. I had known this man when I was younger. He'd been a leader in the junior high group, and now he'd become the pastor. He tragically died at 29 years old. He was on a trip with the students at a lake, Millerton Lake near Fresno, and he was an excellent athlete. It was like a freak accident. It was a tragedy. It was shocking. He drowned at this lake, and he had a funeral at 29 years old. But I remember sitting at this funeral and seeing hundreds of people there. I remember hearing people testify over and over again how he had impacted their life, how he had loved them so well. I remember thinking as I saw this, I mean, he's only 10 years older than me. If I keep living the way I'm living, if I was to die at 29, nobody would talk about a depth of meaning in their life because of anything that I've done. Sure, my parents will be there crying. My buddies will be there talking about some of the fun and stupid things we did. But there will be nothing purposeful, nothing meaningful, nothing of eternal value. And I remember as I sat there, I just... I just started, I don't know if I was praying yet, but I started to say, I want a different life. I want this abundant life. I didn't know it, but I wanted this abundant life that Jesus offers. And notice what else Jesus says. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The one who dies in our place and takes away sins, it's Jesus and, you know, I know this morning I spent a lot of time talking about sin and how the wages of sin is death and how Jesus satisfies the justice required 
for the price of sin through his sacrifice on the cross. And Jesus talks about this over and over again in the Gospels. He says he came to die. He came to die for our sins. He came to die in our place to lay down his life. And he willingly, notice, lays down his life. His life was never taken from him. The Romans thought they took it. The the Jewish leaders thought they took it. But he actually moved to lay down his life. It was why he came to die in our place. And I want us to think a moment about the heart of Jesus for you and for me, that he would willingly lay down his life for you. You know, several, several, several years ago, when our son Noah was a baby, Chris and I, we were living in this uh, townhouse by Fresno State. I was a college pastor, two-story little townhouse. And one morning uh, I was off. She was at the top of the stairs and she had no in her arms. And, you know, said something like, hi, honey. I said, hey, honey, I'm sitting in a chair down there. She takes a step and she slips down the stairs. And I'm horrified. I I can't get up fast enough to do anything. I, I get out of my chair, I run over, but there's nothing I can do. She tumbles down the stairs with Noah in her arms. But one of the things that she did was she held him tight, twisted and contorted her body, left herself completely exposed so she would take the full brunt of falling down those stairs. And when she came to the bottom of the stairs, thank God she wasn't seriously injured. She was in a lot of pain. She was crying. But you know, Noah, he was just sitting there with his little baby face. He didn't even know anything had happened. (laughs) He thought mom just having some fun with him. And you know, to me, that's a picture of Jesus laying down his life so that we could live. She laid down her, her life. She, Noah could have been seriously injured or died, but she took the brunt for him. And that's what Jesus has done for you and me. That's the heart of Jesus, friends, that he has for you. Can you imagine a heart so big, so full of love? It's beyond our comprehension. In John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? Jesus is the life. We've talked about that a lot this week, that God created us. First verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created us, male and female, in his image. And then God revealed himself through his word and through Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Jesus says here he's also not just life, but he's resurrection because there's death. There can't be resurrection unless there's death. And death is a reality. Last time I checked, It's one out of one. That's the percentage. Every single one of us will one day die and stand before God. Think about this. A hundred years from now, some of you that have like a freaky longevity might be 115 or something. A hundred years from now, all of us in this room are going to be dead. We're going to be nothing but a memory. And the question is, where are we going to spend eternity? Jesus makes this statement. He asks this question. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
Do you believe this? How is this possible? It's possible through the resurrection because Jesus rose from the dead. He's the resurrection and the life. And we need the resurrection because there is sin and there is death. The wages of sin is death. We talked about that earlier, how the law of the Old Testament was never meant to make anybody right with God. It could not possibly be followed perfectly. It was meant to show us how desperately we need God. And then the sacrificial system that was developed was never meant to completely forgive sins. It just symbolically covered sins. It was always God who forgave, but that is why the sacrificial system pointed to Jesus, pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. Remember back to John 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hebrews 9.12 tells us this, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. And he's risen from the dead to provide complete forgiveness and eternal life to all who will trust in him. So in John 18, Judas brings a whole cohort of guards and, and priests to arrest Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying with uh, Peter, James, and John, and, and he's arrested. Uh, verse uh, 4 of 18 says this, Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. So Jesus, he's in control here. He knows what's going to happen. He's, he's fully realizing this, and he goes to meet them, and he asks them the question, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And then check this out. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine that? I mean, it was like this moment where it's like, I am, boom, and everyone just falls over. I mean, you still want to get up and arrest him. You're crazy, I think, but, but that's what they did. But the point of what happens here is, I am is one of the names of God in the Old Testament. And the moment Jesus says, I am he, it's just a glimpse, like a shining flash of his power, that conquering king that will one day come to the earth and establish his kingdom. You see a flash of it here, but it just tells us that he's in full control. He was not taken. He went willingly. He stands trial before the priests. He's denied by Peter. This all happens in chapter 18. Then he comes and stands before Pilate. Because you see, the Jews were not permitted by Roman law to murder anybody, to kill anybody, to execute anybody. They couldn't, they couldn't by, by law, have anybody executed. So they had to go to Rome. And this would then fulfill the prophecy that Jesus would be lifted up, like he said he would be lifted up. But they take him to Rome. Pilate's kind of like, well, why do you guys really want to do this? You know, it seems like a problem you should work out yourselves. But they insist. And so Pilate's with Jesus. He's asking him questions. Are you a king? Finally, Jesus answers, verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And I think that Pilate's response is maybe a question 
I would imagine that many of you here in this room are even asking today, what is truth really? What can I really trust? Maybe you've been lied to. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you are suspicious of people or institutions and you feel worn down. You know, this is where Pilate is. Pilate is a man who is worn down. He serves Caesar. Caesar's a man, a, a, a wicked man, but he says he's a god among many Roman gods. So Caesar's heard before, yeah, there's men claiming to be gods, and he's pretty suspicious. He's like, they don't seem like gods to me. You know what's sad about Pilate is history tells us that after his time here in Palestine, he's transferred to a district of Rome called Gaul, which is modern-day France. You think he'd be happy there. But no, actually what happens is Pilate, he commits suicide later in life. Why? Because he's a man who never embraced the truth. He didn't bow to Jesus in this moment. He's got power. He's got prestige. But he doesn't have purpose. He doesn't have meaning. He doesn't have the abundant life. He doesn't have forgiveness. He doesn't have redemption. He doesn't have Jesus. But maybe you feel a bit like Pilate. You're worn down. You've pursued things. You've tried things. You've, you've, you've been hurt. You're, you're searching for purpose. You're searching for hope. You're, you're searching for identity. You're desperate to know, really, who am I? Who is God? What's the good life? And, and Jesus tonight, in the same way that he stood before Pilate, I believe he's speaking to you now, and in love, proclaiming that, that he is this life. He is not what, but who you've been searching for. Well, in chapter 19, Jesus is beaten. He's flogged with something called the cat of nine tails. It's this whip, this leather whip with straps on it, pieces of bone. I mean, it would just literally shred his body if you've seen the passion of the Christ. I mean, I think they do it more graphically than I've ever seen. Um, he's crowned with thorns. He's mocked. His clothes are divided among Roman guards. And then, as we heard in the video, Pilate brings him before the crowd, and they choose Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer, to be set free instead of Jesus. But again, symbolic, right, that, that Jesus would die in the place of sinful humanity just as he dies in the place of Barabbas, who should have died. And then he's nailed to a cross at nine in the morning. And this is significant because the Jewish Passover feast, where they're sacrificing literally thousands of lambs to commemorate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, uh, happens at 9 a.m. And Jesus hangs on the cross. He's spit on. He's mocked. They put a sign over his head saying, King of the Jews, to make fun of him. And then at 3 p.m., he breathes his last breath. And that's the very moment that the trumpets sound at the temple, signifying that the sacrifices were finished because this was the moment that no more animal sacrifices would ever need to be offered because the Lamb of God had died for the sins of the world. And in the temple, there was this curtain 30 feet high. Uh, behind it was a place called the Holy of Holies. It represented like the presence of God. And this curtain, we're told in the Gospels, ripped in two from top to bottom, signifying that for all times, the barrier between humanity and God has been broken open and there's full access to the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. And then Jesus rises from the dead. Now that the payment of sin is complete, he's buried. And three days later, John 20 tells us, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb 
She sees it empty. She goes and tells Peter and John. She's upset. Somebody's stolen his body, she thinks. Peter and John race to the tomb. John makes sure to tell us the two were running together, and the other disciple, that's him, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. He wants us to know he's a little faster than Peter, right? They get to the tomb, they go in, and what they see is his face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, which were lying there, but rolled up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then Jesus is going to appear to Mary Magdalene later when she comes back to the tomb. Jesus has risen from the dead. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So listen, God not only offers you and I the forgiveness of sins, but he says, we'll make a trade. I will give you the righteousness of Christ and take your guilt and shame. I've heard it said this way, that on the cross, the father treated the son as if he'd lived like you and me so that you and I could be treated as if we'd lived like the son. Theologians call it the great exchange. Imagine it kind of like this. Imagine you owed somebody a quadrillion dollars, 10 to the 17th power in dollars. Like you can't even fathom how much money that is, right? Nor could I. And then somebody came to you and said, hey, guess what? Somebody paid your debt. Like you owe nothing. Like anybody in the room, if you got some debt, that would be a good day, right? Just whatever you owe, if it's only hundred bucks, debt's paid in full, quadrillion dollars. But then they said, in addition to that, they deposited a quadrillion dollars into your bank account. <laughs> That's the exchange. I mean, that doesn't even touch how great the exchange is, but that gives you an idea. The depth of sin that we've been forgiven, the righteousness of Christ that we've been gifted. But friends, every person must make their own personal decision to repent. That means turn from saying, I'm in charge, to say, God, you're in control. Doesn't mean you're going to follow him perfectly, but you're saying, I'm going to take my hands off being in control of my life and say, Lord, you're the master. You're Lord. You're God. Repent. We turn to him and we ask him to forgive us of our sins and we trust him. Listen to what Jesus said back in John 3, verse 36. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. See, friends, when you stand before God, He's not going to ask you, what did your mom or dad believe about Jesus? What did your best friend, what did your counselors or your teachers or your pastor what did they believe about Jesus, your grandma? That, it's, it's going to be you standing before God by yourself and answering to how you responded to the offer that Jesus gave of life and forgiveness. And here's the deal, though. As we have seen in the life of Jesus, God does not watch our struggle from afar. He doesn't watch our depravity from a distance. He doesn't just stand back so far above us, so distant, so uncaring, just judging and condemning. No, what God does is He gets personally involved with the sin and the dirt and the pain and the messiness of our lives. 
as he comes to the world through Jesus Christ, Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not. We see in the Gospels that as Jesus teaches and as he heals and he even raises people from the dead, we also see that he loves, that he cares, that he has compassion. And as he hung on the cross bearing the horrible weight of the sin of humanity, all, all the judgment, all, all the rebellion, all the disobedience, all the curse, all the punishment that his sacrificial death is what brings reconciliation between humanity and God. And at the core of it all, he died in our place, your place, my place, knowing everything in our lives, all the sin and the shame, the, the sins that we try to hide, maybe the sins that we brag about, maybe the things we don't even know yet are sin, not just the actions and the words, but even the secret thoughts that we dwell on. Jesus knows it all, and he stood as a substitute in our place, absorbing the wrath of God. And the most powerful thing about it, though, is that Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. He's not in the tomb anymore. He is risen. He is alive through his Holy Spirit. He is here with us tonight, and his arms are open wide in an invitation to you to come to him that you may have life and life abundantly. It's kind of like the story I heard about a man who had gone to prison. Seems that he had uh, done some things, obviously committed some crimes. He had a wife, he had a child, and he was in prison. While he was in prison, he actually came to follow Christ and his life changed. These were the days before emails or texting, so he wrote a handwritten letter to his wife. And he said, listen, I know that I have been a horrible husband, an absent father, and I have hurt you uh, beyond words. But I've changed. I, I've come to know God, and I'm asking for a second chance. I would love to have a second chance to be a, a husband and a father to this family. But then he wrote, I know that you may not even ever want to see my face again, and I won't put you through that if, if you don't want that. So here's, here's the date that I'm going to be released from prison. He told her the date. He said, I'm going to get in a, on a bus, and it's going to drive by the bus stop that's right near the house where you're living. And if you want to see me again, just tie a little yellow ribbon around the bus stop pole, and I'll get off the bus, and I'll come home, and, and we'll work on being a family again. But, but if you don't want to see me again, don't tie any yellow ribbons, and I'll just stay on the bus. You'll never see me again. I promise. So the day of his release comes. And you know, he's got that anticipation, right? You know, you know that feeling when you're like, well, I hope something happens, but I don't know. I, I'm ready to be disappointed. So he gets on the bus. The bus turns the corner of the street where the bus stop is, where he's looking for that yellow ribbon. But before he even sees the bus stop, on all the telephone poles and on the trees, and dozens and dozens of yellow ribbons on the bus stop. There was hundreds of yellow ribbons on the street. And the message was clear. Welcome home. Come on. And friends, this is what God has given to you and me. He's created us. He's given us a conscience. He's revealed himself to us through his word. And he has come to us 
through Jesus Christ who died and rose again and is inviting you today. I don't know everyone in this room. I've had the privilege of meeting some of you, and I probably won't be able to meet all of you, but I do know something about you. I know that you're here for a reason. I know that uh, a loving God created you on purpose. I know that He loved you before you were ever born, and I know that He's here with us today in this room right now. And the question, my friends, is will you believe in Jesus? Will you trust Him? Will you turn to Him? Will you ask Him to forgive you? Will you follow Him? I don't care how how young you are. You're thinking, what can I really do following Jesus? I don't care. You can change the world right where you're at. But it starts by taking that first step of following Jesus. So if you haven't yet, or if you're not sure, will you follow Him? If you are here tonight and you don't have 100% certainty that you're right with a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I have no doubt God is calling you tonight. So what do you do? Well, you just take the next step, the first step. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 say this simply, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And in your heart, believe that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So here's what I want to ask. You know, there's a picture in the Bible that says, when one sinner repents, the angels of heaven throw a party. They rejoice. And here's what I want to ask. If you are here tonight and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ with 100% certainty, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet and I'm going to ask everybody else to rejoice as that person stands. So who is here tonight that would take a stand and say, I want to follow Jesus starting tonight? Anyone in this room? Let's stand and let's rejoice. Praise God. Come on. Amen. 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 Rejoice with them. Anyone else? Man. Amen. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Stay standing. Stay standing. You know, God calls us to follow Him publicly, and uh, you have just taken a courageous step, and we are so excited and thankful that you have taken that step. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to ask everybody in the room to pray just as a sign of solidarity and collaboration. Well, of course, don't pray it if you don't want to pray it, but I'm going to ask everybody to just repeat these words after me, and then Russell's going to come up, and he has some things to share with us. Let's pray this together out loud. Dear Jesus, thank you for creating me and loving me. I am a sinner, and I need to be saved. Thank you for showing me the way. I believe you died for my sins on the cross. And I believe you rose from the dead. I ask you now to forgive all my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And take control of my life. I repent of my own way of living. And accept you as Lord and Savior. Help me live the way you created me to live. live. 
In Jesus' name.